0: From one twit to another. (laughs) Well, and that's what I was doing this afternoon. I was Facebooking, a word I didn't know about three years ago, and Twittering and all the rest. I want to second the motion that was made earlier by DW, how good it is to be here at beautiful New Brunswick Bible Institute. Here in Victoria Corner, New Brunswick, I love that. I love saying that, overlooking the beautiful St John River, I worked really hard to get all that exactly right. Did I do it okay close enough right i i i don't i don't speak Canadian, eh you know but i 'm trying doing the best I can. I mean from Tupelo, Mississippi long way from there to victoria corner and uh, the the hospitality the friendliness the family spirit just wonderful to behold so one reason we come back is because marlene and i do not feel like visitors we are just we are just the we are just the uh, we're the chairman of the mississippi division of the new brunswick bible institute fan club we're so far the only members, but we're working hard to get more all the time. Well, glad to be here and glad to be with you. And I want to say, too, enjoyed the music. D.W., Jesse, thank you. Just tremendous. And Matt, thank you. And, boy, that, uh, that worship team, that young fellow on the, on, the, on the drum, the... I was going to say bongo, but that really... That's not right. That's what it, an African drum, I guess, I... Is there a name for that kind of drum? What? Jambe? Jombe? Jombe? Where's that from? Djembe, Djembe. Very cool. Very cool. You very cool. I like it. I like it. That's good music and a lot of fun. And we're all just, we're just getting started here and has been already mentioned that in my sessions, we are looking... At the miracles of Jesus. And I noted that... uh, I, (laughs) I noted this morning that the liveliest the audience got this morning was when I held up my iPad. Yes, everybody. Because Matt, everyone in ministry needs an iPad. Could I get an amen on that? We got a witness on that. So... Yeah, I got all the the, the, the miracles of Jesus, all 35 of them here can just go one right to the other. Now, now tonight, let me begin, not with the text, but with um, Peggy Noonan. If you are a student at all of the American political scene, you've probably run across the name of Peggy Noonan. She was, for some years, in the Reagan White House. She was one of the top speechwriters for President Ronald Reagan. After her time in the White House, she began to write columns that uh, are glittering essays of political thought. She is one of, in the American political scene, She's one of the most intelligent, thoughtful observers. She's just a great writer. She's a great wordsmith. I mean, anything Peggy Noonan writes, I'm always glad to read. And once a week in the Wall Street Journal, you also get it online at opinionjournal.com, she talks about the, the changing political scene. It was early 2009. Barack Obama was about to become the first African-American president ever in the history of the United States. And about a week before his inauguration, Peggy Noonan wrote a column about what it meant for Barack Obama to become the president of the United States. And I know even, we live in, I, I pause here in the, in the midst of this opening illustration, to say that we live in such cynical times. We are such deeply divided people in America, and I suppose to some extent here in Canada, it is true as well that even to begin a sermon that way makes you think that perhaps I wish to make a few political points. I have no political points To make tonight. The the 2012 election. Basically began the day after the 2008 election was finished. And so we're in the middle of it in the states. And will be for some months to come. But in January of 2009. Just before President Obama was to become the president. Peggy Noonan wrote a column. About what it meant. And she said. I realize there are some people who have difficulty with this whole concept. And she said they simply cannot believe it. They cannot believe it. That it wasn't possible 50 years earlier for an African American to be elected to the highest office in the United States of America. And she said this is what got my attention. She said, in order to believe, you must suspend disbelief. And all of God's children said, hmm. It's one of those statements that when you hear it, whether it's in a political context or not, you, your, your ears perk up a little bit. You're just reading along, and it's politics, politics, and then boom. In order to believe, you must suspend disbelief. And she said, writing in that column in January of '09, what is needed in America today is the willing suspension of disbelief. And then she said it more plainly. To believe, suspend disbelief. I like that. I would go even further, and I would say that until you suspend disbelief, you can never believe. Hmm. Until you suspend disbelief, you can never believe. Why is that? Four words. Faith is a choice. Faith is a choice. We believe because we choose to believe. I, uh, I was late coming to that. Late. For a long time, even in the ministry, I tended to regard faith as an emotion, as a feeling. If I went to church... The music was good, the preaching was good, I had lots of faith. If I was going through a hard time, discouraged, and people weren't treating me very well, my faith tended to disappear. It took me a long time to understand that faith is a choice we make. It is a conscious choice to believe that God is who He said He is, and that He will do what he said, he will do. And if we do not choose, we will never believe. Now, I can add to that. Faith begins with a conscious choice to suspend disbelief. To open the door to what might be that has never been before. How else are we supposed to understand the miracles Of the Bible. How else are we to face the hopeless situations all around us? It is right here that Peggy Noonan's insight speaks so powerfully to our situation. To believe, suspend disbelief. Now, there is more to it than that, but we must start right there. If it's a miracle we need, and who doesn't need one? Sometimes, somewhere, somehow, then we must suspend disbelief. We must stop saying, this can't happen. Because when you factor God into the equation, nothing is impossible. There are a lot of places in the miracle stories in the Gospels to which we might turn. I direct your attention tonight to one of my favorites. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. The story of a Roman centurion who had amazing faith in Jesus. And how his amazing faith was amazingly rewarded. This passage shows us how faith works by giving us a glimpse of unusual faith found in an unusual man who displayed his faith in an unusual way. In fact, almost everything in this story seems unusual to me. Here is a man who suspended disbelief so that he could believe and thereby received a great miracle from the Lord. Now, Three people star in this story. There is Jesus, there is the centurion, and there is his slave who was deathly ill. About his slave, we don't know very much. We never see him. Jesus never meets him. We don't know his name. We don't know his background. We know he must have been a young man. Luke says he was sick. To the point of death. Matthew says he was paralyzed and in great pain. That's all we know about him. I picture this nameless slave lying motionless on a couch, his breath labored, his faith bathed in sweat, his pulse racing, the only sound an occasional moan. Death tightens its grip with every hour. It is evident. To all who see him. That only a miracle could save him now. And that is why the centurion came to Jesus. He was looking for a miracle. The second person in this story is the centurion. We know much more about him. The centurion was a Roman soldier. The very name, centurion, sounds like the English word for century, meaning 100. A centurion in the Roman army was the captain of 100 soldiers. Six centuries of Roman soldiers, in other words, 600 soldiers, were called a cohort. Ten cohorts equaled a legion of approximately 6,000 men. We are told in Luke chapter 7 that the centurion was stationed in Capernaum. Capernaum, a small out-of-the-way fishing village on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. There the Romans had a military outpost. And there this Roman centurion made his home. It will help you also to know that centurions were the backbone Of the mighty Roman Empire. Of the mighty Roman army. It was the centurions who sled the men into battle. It was the centurions who took care of their men. It was the centurions who took the orders from their superiors and passed them down to the men serving under their authority. That's an important point for this story. The centurion was a man both... Under authority and in authority. Because of his position in the Roman army. The centurion was constantly receiving orders from officers above him. And passing those orders down to the soldiers who served under him. In order to be a centurion and to do your job well. You had to know how to take orders. You had to know how to give orders. That fact Is key to understanding this passage. And just by way of a side note. Centurions are mentioned. At least 21 times. In the New Testament. And every mention of a centurion. In the New Testament. Is always favorable. The most well known being. The centurion who at the foot of the cross. When Jesus died. Proclaimed. Surely. This man was the son of God. Roman centurion who lived in Capernaum had a slave whom he highly regarded. Now, that fact would have been unusual also in the first century. We know that there were hundreds of thousands of slaves spread all across the Roman Empire at all levels of society. There were some very well-educated slaves, and there were many others who who were ill-treated and poorly cared for. It was unusual for a master to show any concern for his slaves. One ancient writer uh, commented that, quote, When your animals are old, you throw them out to die, you do the same with your slaves. So it would not have been an unusual thing for the slave to get sick and the centurion just to say, I could care less, let him die. In fact, he could have put him to death himself and nothing would have happened to him because slaves had no real rights in the Roman. Empire. So, this is the first unusual thing about this story that a Roman centurion would care so much about his slave. Here is the second thing his unusual response. He sent some Jewish elders to Jesus. Luke 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished speaking in the hearing of all the people, he entered. Into Capernaum, there a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. This is very unusual. It was unusual in that he didn't go himself. It was unusual that he asked the Jewish elders to go in his place. And it was most unusual that the Jewish elders would agree to go and represent him. It's hard for me tonight to explain adequately to you what the real situation was back in the first century. If I said to you there was no love lost between the Romans and the Jews, that would be the minimum thing I could say. The Romans were the overlords. The Romans were the masters. The Romans were the conquerors. The Romans were the mightiest nation on earth with the mightiest army. Uh, they were known for their ferocity, known for their cruelty. To the Romans in the time of war, life itself was cheap and they had taken over. They had conquered the land. Uh, From the Greeks. And had taken over. And had ruled the Holy Land. With an iron fist. And so it was. By the time of the first century. Be fair enough to say. The average Jewish man. Had no use for the Romans. And actually hated them. With a fierce hatred. And it would be Noah. It would be no exaggeration to say that the Romans looked down their nose at the Jewish people with their strange, bizarre, superstitious kind of odd religion that bore no resemblance to the kind of paganistic religion that the Romans practiced. I'm just saying that, and that in most cases, you could just put it this way, the Romans hated the Jews and the Jews hated the Romans. And in normal times, never, 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 Never would the leaders of a Jewish synagogue agree to go and represent a Roman centurion. That was not done. But this man was different. When the elders speak to Jesus, they stress the centurion's good qualities. This is what they say. They say this man, meaning the centurion, deserves to have you do this. That is, he deserves it. He deserves to have you come. In other words, the Jewish elders actually go and plead the cause of the Roman centurion. This man deserves to have you come and heal his servant. Why? Because he loves our nation. That wouldn't have been said about a lot of Romans. He loves our nation. He has built our synagogue. Now, if you ever go to the Holy Land, and I hope you do, you need to. You need to take a tour over there. When you do, your tour will take you to the ancient village of Capernaum. You know what? It was a little village In Jesus' day. It's not much bigger than that now. I mean it's overgrown with some churches. But there's not much there. It was a fishing village in Jesus' day. There's some churches there. And ruins. And that's it. I mean you're you're walking on the same roads where Jesus was. And Peter's mother-in-law was healed. A lot of interesting things there. I can see it in my mind's eye because was just there on a tour a year and a half ago my wife and I were leading a tour over there and you can see you go down that walkway heading toward where Peter's mother-in-law was healed and over there on the left you see these ruins It's ruins of an ancient synagogue so it's beautiful it's gorgeous it's been been painstakingly restored you know, in your tour guide takes you in there and gives you the lesson and gives you the talk. And, and everybody, everybody reads, you know, they, they they read this passage from Luke 7 or Matthew 8. And they talk about, because Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters up in Galilee. So a lot of passages you can read and a lot of things to talk about. You sit there and it's just beautiful. And uh, they tell you, this ancient synagogue goes back to the second century. The second century. Now that's old. That's really old. But that's not the first century. The first century was when Jesus was there. Second century was several generations later. Now, after they finished talking to you and showing you, this is where the rabbi would sit, and this is where the teaching took place. This is where the men were, the women were. It's just beautiful. They bring you around to the side. They will say, See this stone? Different color? There's a different color. It's lighter up here. It's darker down here. See this this stone down here in the bottom of the foundation? What's that? It's the foundation stone of a synagogue that's even older than the synagogue you can see. Well, the synagogue you can see goes back to the second century. The one underneath it is older than that. Reckon who built that one? Yeah, reckon who built that one? Capernaum wasn't the kind of town where you'd have five synagogues, it was a fishing village. Who do you suppose built that one? This town right here. Uh, he built our synagogue. Man, I, this is unbelievable. This, 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 is a, this is, I mean, this is, a, this is like Donald Trump coming and saying, what do you need? You need a church? I'll build you a church. Well, he's going to run for president. He should build some churches, you know. I mean, how much would it cost to build a church today? What would it cost? If you got to buy land and you got to build it, what would it cost? Okay, all right. We'll start with quarter million dollars. You're not going to get a lot for a quarter million dollars, but let's start right there. Let's, let's goose it on up a little bit. I think maybe a half million dollars. Now, down in Dallas, where they do it big, they're re- the, the First Baptist Church of Dallas is right now in a building project. That's gonna cost them before they're finished hundred and fifteen million dollars. That may be a little over the top. Okay. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if somebody comes to you and says, I got a checkbook and I want to write you a check and I'm gonna and, and I'm not making a down payment, I'm gonna pay for the whole church, lock, stock, and barrel, everything. What are you gonna say? You probably say, Well, name it after you. What do you want, you know? I mean, that would be a huge gift for somebody to build a church. Here's a Roman centurion who's not even Jewish. Uh, Dr. Ryrie says in his comments that probably, and I think he's probably right, that this man probably was a proselyte convert to Judaism. And, and Ryrie speculates that, 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 that he had become a believer in, in the God of the Old Testament and he was worshipping with the Jewish people and he was on his way to becoming fully apart and to show his love and respect he built a synagogue. It's just mind-blowing. That is no small gift. That's a major deal. And that is why the Jewish leaders said and I'm quoting a different translation. The Jewish leaders said in one translation to Jesus if anyone deserves your help he does i like that that's nice and that rounds out the picture of the centurion he was kind-hearted wealthy generous and public spirited he was the kind of man he's the kind of man every pastor needs (laughs) every pastor can use a few friends like everybody would like to have he's a good man With a big and generous heart. So we've got an unusual man. We've got an unusual response. And then third, we have in this story an unusual journey. The Bible says the Jews came to Jesus and begged Jesus to go with them to this man's house. Because time was short and the servant was dying. So Jesus went with them. He went with them to try to to heal to the home of a Gentile. To heal the servant of a Roman soldier. Verse 6. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house. They didn't understand. Understand. He didn't get there. Jesus is over there. House is here. Geography always helps. Here is the house of the centurion. Where the servant is. And he's dying. Here is Jesus over here. And the Jewish elders come and make their pitch, and they say, "This man deserves it. If any man deserves to be healed, this and have his servant healed, this man does." And Jesus says, "Okay, I'll go with you." And he's on his way when he is interrupted in his journey, and see what happens here. The centurion he hears that Jesus is coming. He's overwhelmed by that. And he sends some of his friends to say to Jesus, Don't come. Don't. Don't come. Jesus, don't come. Isn't an unusual story? Everything's upside down. Everything is upside down. A centurion who loves his slave, who built a church for the Jews, Who speak up on his behalf. And when Jesus comes to heal his slave. He sends his friends out to say. No, no. Don't come. Everything about this story is so different than we would have expected. Understand. Jesus didn't have to come. He didn't owe it to the man. Worthiness had nothing to do with it. A hundred years ago and more. Frederick Faber. Tend to him that could have been written about this story. There's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. There's a welcome for the sinner, and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. For the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. That's the third unusual thing that Jesus was willing to go. And here's the fourth thing, an unusual statement now. He never made it to the centurion's home. Why? Because the centurion wouldn't let him come. Lord, he says through his friends, don't trouble yourself. And look what he says, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. So interesting. So interesting. What had the Jews said? What had the Jewish elders said? They said, this man's worthy. He built a church for us. He's a good man. If anybody deserves your mercy, it's him. Nice thought. Not very biblical. The Roman centurion has got better theology than the Jewish elders. He says, I don't deserve anything from you. And I'm not worthy that you should come to my house. And that is why, Lord... I didn't come to you myself. Because I don't have any standing. To come to you. I am not worthy. Wrapped up in verses 6 through 8. Are the two great traits of this man. One is humility. Which is a right estimate of oneself. And the other is faith. Where he says Lord just say the word. And my servant will be healed. You can see the reason for such faith in verse 8. And this is what. Through his friends, the centurion says to Jesus, For I myself, remember what I said, for I myself am a man under authority. He was a centurion. Under him were a hundred soldiers. He gave an order. It had to be obeyed. His word was law to those soldiers. He said, Go, they had to go. He said, Stop, they had to stop. He gave an order. It must be obeyed. That's the way the military works, right? You give an order. It's not a request. It's not a call for a committee meeting. The order comes down, it must be obeyed. And the man says, I'm under authority. I got a lot of people over me, going all the way up to the emperor. And anybody above me can give an order. He can say, Go, and I got to go. He can say, Stay, and I got to stay. Whatever he says, I got to do. I'm used to taking orders. I'm used to giving orders. I say to this one, go. And he goes. And this one, come. And he comes. I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. Love this story. Love it. Because he talks just like a military man would talk. That's how military men think. A soldier's way of thinking shines through his uniform. When I give a command, I expect instant obedience. If you don't... And he says, look, look, look. I give a command and my soldiers go into battle. I don't even have to be personally present. If I give the command and it's passed down through the channels, when the soldiers get the command, they go into battle. They don't have to hear it from me personally. That's the power of my word. And he's saying, Jesus, you've got a lot more power than me. You've got unlimited power. Just speak the word, and my servant will be healed. He argues from what he knows about himself to what he knows about Jesus. If my authority produces instant obedience, and it does, how much more will yours produce I want to stop here and ask a question. Interesting question. How much did this Roman centurion know about Jesus? I got two words for you. Not much. Not much. Probably knew a little bit about his background. Probably knew something about his teaching, probably had heard, certainly, that Jesus could work miracles. Did he know that Jesus was the creator of the whole universe? No, I don't think he knew that. Did he know he was the second person of the Trinity? I doubt that he knew that. Jesus' disciples are struggling with a lot of those big concepts, and they're with him every day. Did he know he was more than a carpenter? Yeah, yeah, he knew that. More than a teacher. He knew that. He saw Jesus for what he was. And his great faith came from that vision. Because he saw Jesus as absolutely authoritative. He considered Jesus' word to be absolutely authoritative. What else he didn't know? We don't know. But he knew enough to know this. That if Jesus spoke the word, his Servant would be healed. That's all he needed to know. And then the unusual declaration. Very unusual, in fact. Verse 9 When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. He was amazed. Turning to the crowd, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Jesus was a Jew. He came as the Jewish Messiah. As the Messiah to the Jewish people. To the nation of Israel. In fulfillment of all the promises. And Jesus said, I've been preaching. North, south, east, west. I've been all over Israel. And I cannot find anybody in Israel who has the kind of faith this man has By the way, did you know, only two times in the Gospels, only two times is Jesus ever said to be amazed. Only two times. Here, because of this man's belief in Nazareth, because of their unbelief. Here is faith where you would least expect it here is faith outside of israel I have a question for you uh, this one really bothers me why was there so little faith in israel why was it so hard to find they had the law they had the prophets They had Abraham. They had Moses. They had David. They had the Torah. They had the Psalms. They had the law. The testimony. They had the hundreds of years of tradition. And yet when Jesus came. Not much faith. To be found. Their religion. Had not. Produced. Very. Much. Faith. In fact. Their religion. Had made them. Overly. Cautious. Careful now boys. He could be an imposter. Careful now. False messiahs all the time now. Careful now. Don't go out on a limb here. Be careful. Just watch this. Watch this. Nothing good's going to come of this, I tell you. Nothing good. Nothing good. Mm-hmm. Let me sit down. I'll just talk to you for a second. Do you know who's most likely to be guilty of this kind of sin today? Us, us, the more you go to church, ironically, you can get inoculated against the real thing. Your religion, even good religion, can keep you inoculated against genuine faith in the living God. That's what happens. In Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, O Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you! If the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. It shall be worse for you in the day of judgment. Worse for Chorazin. Worse for Capernaum. Worse for Bethsaida. Because they saw so much. And they knew so much. And they did so little about it. And those terrible sinners in Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were terrible sinners. It will be better for them in the day of judgment. And worse for the people of Chorazin. Jesus was amazed. There's an unusual miracle here, the end of it. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Okay, you want a grade A miracle? This is a grade A miracle right here. Jesus doesn't go. He doesn't even say a word. He doesn't touch him. He doesn't, you know, we talked this morning about spitting in the ground and putting it on the man's eye. None of that. None of that. He doesn't go. He doesn't touch. He doesn't pray. I mean, it's not said that Jesus prayed here. He always talked to his father, but he's not mentioned. This is a pure miracle of God. How did he do it? I don't know. I don't have a clue. But I do know this. He did it to prove that he is the Son of God with all authority over sickness and disease and death. End of my sermon. Question for you. What does it take to amaze Jesus? Well, I tell you what doesn't qualify. A seminary degree. I got one, so what? (laughs) You know? Stream all those degrees and letters and numbers after your name. Jesus not impressed. We used to give away those Sunday school attendance, you know? Wear them like medals down your chest. I always thought that was cool, you know. I saw a guy who went 55 years gone to Sunday school. I'm amazed. I was amazed. Uh, you know. What does it take to amaze Jesus? One word faith. Faith audacious faith unexpected faith unashamed faith that's what impresses Jesus and I'm glad about that because if it took a lot of money or a lot of education or a lot of power or a lot of influence or connections in high places then a lot of us would be disqualified if it took being super religious a lot of us wouldn't make it either faith 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 is what impresses our Lord two vital facts and I'm done number one Faith works when we come to God with a sense of our own unworthiness. This man said, look, look, I know know what those Jewish elders said, but they're my friends and they like it. Lord, I, I am not worthy. I am not deserving of anything from you. Listen, if we think because of our religiosity... That we deserve a hearing with God. Um, If you're taking notes, write this down. God doesn't play by our rules. He doesn't play by our rules. He's not impressed by the stuff that impresses us. And sometimes we in the evangelical movement act as if we are saved by faith and yet kept by works. As if God owes us something because we go to church. As if, you know, if you just, look, I I know it because I feel it kind of my, I feel it in my own heart. I, I admit it. I feel it, you know. Lord, I've lived by the rules. As best I understood them. I tried to do what you said, Lord. Why has it worked out this way? Uh, Oftentimes we pray as if God owes us something. Let me tell you something. You let us get into a crisis. There's nothing like a crisis to teach us to pray like a Christian. There's nothing like a crisis to get you on your knees, crying out desperately to God. The effectual, fervent prayer. Effectual fervent. Fervent in the Greek is a word that means translated in other context, boiling, the boiling prayer of a righteous man. People want to know what's a boiling prayer. It has nothing to do with volume, it has nothing to do with length. It has nothing to do with eloquence. It has nothing to do with waving your arms or posture or shouting or whatever. Let me tell you what. Don't worry about it. When they take your son or daughter or your grandchild away for life-saving surgery, you will pray a boiling prayer. You will pray a boiling prayer. And you may not say a word, but you'll pray a boiling prayer. It takes a crisis often, doesn't it, to get us down where we need to be. And where we should have been all along. That's why it's a good thing to be backed into a corner now and then. So we come back to understanding salvation is of the Lord. It belongs to God and God alone. Desperate situations make us Christian all over again. We quit talking about how wonderful we are. And we simply cry out, Lord Jesus, Lord have mercy God have mercy. Oh God help. There is no prayer more basic than that. And the first step in salvation is what? To admit how desperately you need salvation. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We have no claim on God. No claim. It's good to be humbled. It's good. That's why Jesus said. That Pharisee. Bragging about himself before the Lord. Forget it. And that poor old tax collector. Who said. God be merciful to me. A sinner. Wouldn't even look up at God. So embarrassed and ashamed. That man. The tax collector. Went home justified. Faith works when we come to God with a sense of our own unworthiness. Number two, faith works when our confidence in the Lord is so strong that we are willing to risk embarrassment and failure. That is why the Pharisees never had much faith Too dangerous, too risky, got to play it safe, can't afford to be embarrassed, have an image to uphold. And that's why the centurion got his answer. He didn't know very much, but what he knew, he was willing to take a chance on. Think about the risk he took. What if Jesus wouldn't come? What if he tried to cure the servant but failed? What if Jesus rebuked him for not being Jewish? What if, what if, what if, what if? Unbelief can always find a thousand excuses not to trust God. It's a wonderful thing to be in so deep that you need a miracle to get out because that's when you're most likely to receive one. Okay, so we can know a lot and believe a little. That'd be the Pharisees. Or we can know a little and believe a lot. And that would be the centurion. Better to believe a lot based on a little knowledge than to know a lot and believe Almost nothing. So I was reading somewhere. I say that a lot. That just means I forgot to write it down. I was reading somewhere. This question. I don't know where I saw this, but this question. Do my prayers bore God? Hmm. Hmm. Now there's some theological issues with that question, I realize. But I also understand what it means. What in my life can only be explained by God? If everything in your life can be explained by you and what you've done, what do you really need God for? What is there in your life that can only be explained by the presence and power and working of God? Or what am I asking for that only God can answer. Sometimes our prayers are tame and plain vanilla because we are afraid to put God on the spot by asking Him for something outrageously huge like the healing of a desperately ill servant. That was not a boring request and it received an amazing, immediate, and miraculous answer. So here is warning and encouragement mixed together. Warning to those who have great knowledge but practically believe very little. An encouragement to those who know very little about the Bible or the Christian faith and yet trust God completely. Full circle now. To believe, suspend disbelief. Some of us need to do that. We've been hanging on to our disbelief as an excuse. Time to let it go. As long as we limit God to what we think He can do, we will never see anything great because our faith remains so small. But once we are willing to suspend our disbelief and renounce our skepticism, then and only then do we become candidates for a miracle. Why do I say that? Because the life of faith is inherently a life of risk. It is not for those timid souls who want to play it safe all the time. Okay, let me throw down some John Calvin here. This is what John Calvin said. He said about this story. That's what Calvin said. How graciously Christ pours out His grace when He finds the vessel of faith open. I like that. How graciously grace pours out when He finds. The vessel of faith open. Nancy Spielberg penned these words, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain, in asking any small drop of refreshment. If I had only known you better, I'd have come running with a bucket. Faith's power does not rest in knowledge, religion, or good works. It's much simpler than that. Faith is not trying harder or being nicer. Faith works when we stop playing it safe, when we throw away our little cup, and when we, with uncertain steps, take the risk and come running to Jesus with a bucket. He fills it to the top every time. But you'll never know until you come running. Father, you've given us this story. It is unusual. So we pray tonight. Burn the truth of it inside us. Lord, some of us feel intimidated by other people, by our own lack of knowledge our own lack of ability. Lord, we're glad that what amazes you is faith. So grant us now the grace to believe and make us willing to suspend disbelief and trust you outrageously that you might be surprised at our faith too. In Jesus' name, amen.